calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast features mature themes and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Realm Presents, a Dagaz Media production, The Dark Tome, Book of Stories, featuring Gargoyles by Stephanie Diaz-Repin, performed by the author. Stars, 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 and then the demons. First the beauty, the brilliance, then the darkness, the pain, the shame, the descent, the howling, and then nothing, nothingness. For how long? Only God knows, but God doesn't love the wicked. In a lot of my cousin's notebooks are pages and pages of hypergeometrical doodles, mutated triangles and trapezoids and lightning bolts, all interlocking, drawn in a furious hand, raw and blue ballpoint, stark, almost elegant, in black rollerball. It's hard to call them doodles, though, because that word calls to mind curly cues, innocuousness. Milo's puzzle-like zigzag mosaics are a perfect storm of precision and insanity. Sometimes they cover just a corner of the page, like a spreading stain, and the rest is words, occasionally beautiful words. Sometimes whole pages are covered with the pattern, and they're mesmerizing. Sometimes he colors the shapes in, leaving the jagged rivers between them blank. Other times he does the reverse, coloring in the arterial spaces and leaving the polygons white, popping off the page. I want to tear them out of the book and take them home, hang them on the wall next to my bed, and stare at them when I get stressed out. But that would be kind of not okay. The hauntings began early. Lobi remembers very clearly a -a two-and-a-half-year-old Camilo, as well she should, since his care fell to her as the youngest sister. 
Loby didn't mind that Evelina foisted the new baby off onto her, since she was madly in love with him and had been since he'd first pierced the air with his scream and locked his newborn gaze on her, his little aunt. Already the teacher she was destined to become, she'd taught him, by age two, to use the toilet and sing a partial ABC and count to 20, and a great number of words, which he had begun using in patchwork sentences. He'd taken his first steps with her, much to Evelina's indifference. Evelina's attention at that time was focused entirely on her husband's real or imagined dalliances involving Una India, with whom they'd grown up and to whom he remained staunchly, stubbornly unopposed, despite Evelina's insistence on her inferiority as a species. He passed her every day on his way to work, and it was said that they talked, that he lingered perhaps longer at her stall than was necessary to buy a pan dulce or a pack of cigarettes. It was said that she dropped her head and smiled whenever he left, and that while he was there, she looked him straight in the eye and that he looked back. In the eye. Direct confrontation was not Evelina's style. She was more of a behind-the-scenes player, a puppet master. But she didn't have quite enough information just yet to set any sort of trap, and so she spent the days and weeks distracted and vexed, drinking sherry more than was proper and looking more gorgeous than ever if a bit bloated. Her son might have been a nuisance, because, truth was, he was a strange little boy and had been a strange baby as well, if not for her little sister, the nun, the tragic spinster-to-be, who loved the little weirdo something ridiculous and therefore took the entirety of his rearing upon herself. Her husband would come home a bit late, after work, and his son would be asleep, angelically in his own bedroom or near sleep, drowsy and sweet, Evelina didn't mind the appearance that this was all due to her own excellent mothering. She had a girl that came once a week to clean the house, and on the days when a freshly clean house conspired with an adorably sleepy son to greet her husband with a fantasy-perfect picture of domestic order, Evelina was rewarded with a vigorous, yelp-inducing sample of what she feared he was passing around to Esa India and God only knew what else in a skirt. Evelina began spending more and more of her days looking out of windows and at little else until her husband came home from work, so it was no surprise that she hadn't noticed Camilo's little friend. The friend Loby at first dismissed as merely an everyday imaginary friend, though Milo did seem a bit young for that stage. He would speak to this friend in a regressed yet strangely sophisticated baby babble, using very few of the actual words he knew and used with others. Sometimes he would lean his head forward into the side as though to catch a secret and then burst into uproarious laughter and run into the next room, peering out from the doorway in a come-and-get-me manner, giggling. Other times he would nod sagely at intervals as though receiving instructions or guidance. It was this particular behavior the family thought most charming, most hilarious. The friend would appear out of nowhere, usually in the afternoon, and whatever Camilo might be doing at the time, eating or looking at a book or playing with a truck or a puppy would be instantly dropped and forgotten. Camilo had been asked many times by Lobi and others what his little friend's name was. He would only squeeze his eyes shut and shake his head vigorously, smiling bashfully as though the answer embarrassed him. He was asked if it was a boy or a girl. The reaction was the same. He would become agitated, then distressed, if asked either question repeatedly. One time, Loby pressed so hard, he burst into tears and remained inconsolable for the rest of the afternoon, to Evelina's utter consternation. Mala, what did you do to him? 
Now he'll never shut up and Rodrigo's going to be home in less than an hour. The line of questioning was naturally dropped in the interest of domestic harmony, but for Lobi, her nephew's little friend began to lose his, or her, charm. When Evelina finally noticed, though, you could say she noticed. She was yanked out of her jealous reverie one afternoon, several weeks after Camilo had first made his friend's acquaintance. Ingrid Aparicio Guzman had dropped by for a chat and a tipple, though when recounting the story later to her mother, Ingrid would leave out the tippling. Lobi had excused herself and Camilo to the kitchen, since she loathed Ingrid, as did nearly everyone, including Evelina, who only associated with her in strict observance of the chismosa code, which dictated that gossips make nice with other gossips, particularly if said gossips were also considered queen bees. Ingrid, for her part, adored and feared Evelina, and guarded rather jealously her self-appointed post as Evelina's lieutenant. Evelina saw her as more of a necessary barnacle, but she allowed Ingrid her delusions because it kept her safely out of the infamous Aparicio Chisme. Not that Ingrid and her mother didn't have plenty on Evelina and her family. In fact, no one invited the Hawkeye of a Metiche like the Lopez Castillo clan. But early in her own Metiche career, Evelina had made it clear she was a force to be reckoned with. At just 13, she had put the India who ran the school tienda out of a job when the woman had dared accuse Evelina of having piojos, let no one forget it. The worst part was that the woman had been correct. Evelina had indeed been carrying lice, but if she'd had lice, then so had others, and the poor woman hadn't had the sense to pin the outbreak on one of the poor, dusty-shoed scholarship students, one of the ones with a shiny black bowl haircut and uneven hem on her uniform. Evelina promptly retaliated by bringing a dried kitten turd to school and planting it in a bag of risitos that Socorro Pinzon had purchased at the student store. Evelina composed and passed Socorro a note, ostensibly from the dreamy Felix Figueroa, and the poor dumb Feita had nearly dropped the risitos in her fumble to unfold the note and devour its contents, sounding each syllable out in her cow-like, four-eyed fashion. Evelina sweetly offered to hold Socorro's snack bag while she read, and it was here that Evelina deposited her bomb. She hadn't expected the twit to actually bite into the caca, but bite Socorro did, and the rest was history. Papa Pinzon was the richest man in the Zona Dos, once seen smoking cigars with none other than Fuentes, fíjate, at an outdoor cafe in Antigua, so there had been no investigation of any kind, no questioning, no exit interview, only a brand new, terrified-looking nun installed in the shopkeeper's place the very next day. And the woman, the unfortunate bearer of Evelina's young wrath? She was known from then on as Esa India Shuka, her given name lost to memory. And Evelina became legend, untouchable. For a while, anyway. So, when Ingrid Aparicio Guzman came calling, Evelina had no choice but to entertain her. Ingrid was crazed over babies and half-mad with longing since she had yet to produce one of her own, though her mother claimed this was by considerate design, so as not to completely upstage her yet unmarried older sister, a claim which was usually met with a nod, a look away, and a sip of coffee or tea, since the entire world knew the elder Aparicio sister preferred the company of women. Where was Milo, she wanted to know, and with some relief, Evelina summoned Lobi from the kitchen, Camilo in tow. Let her son entertain Ingrid. Let the mealy-mouthed busybody tell everybody how beautiful, how like his father, though neither of these was a commonly held opinion. Lobi brought Camilo reluctantly into the courtyard and placed him at Ingrid's feet. 
where he remained for all of five seconds before the behavior began. First, the sharp look to the hallway. Then, the grin of recognition. Then, the game of peekaboo with someone unseen to everyone but him. Using Ingrid's leg as his post, he would hide his face and then look toward the front room, register surprise and delight, and squeal before dissolving into giggles. Ingrid melted, tickled, and amused. After a few rounds of this, Camilo commenced the listening behavior. Face sober, attentive, head slightly cocked, nodding every few seconds or so. Ingrid was rapt. Evelina, having never observed this routine, looked to her sister with some alarm. Her sister's face was impassive, bemused. The family had tried to get Evelina to watch her son with his imaginary friend before, only to be waved away with the slosh of a sherry glass and a grunt. Now Evelina had no choice but to watch the scene play out as it had on many afternoons between her odd little boy and his invisible playmate. A dread she could not explain began to creep over her like a shawl, but she clenched her teeth and shrugged it off. Camila listened and nodded one more time, then buried his face in Ingrid's legs to her utter delight. Uno, do, tre, cato, he counted, and then abruptly bounded into the next room. Ingrid, biting her lip from the cuteness, turned to Evelina with an expression of, could you just die? And Evelina smiled weakly and poured them each another sherry to the sound of Milo's little bare feet padding over the tile, disappearing into the spare bedroom. Almost every afternoon around this time, Lobi offered with a shrug, and then the air was broken with a scream. The three women sprang to their feet and rushed to the hallway where Camilo had disappeared. Had he fallen? Was there a tarantula? It was a scream unlike any they'd ever heard from a human, baby or otherwise. They were met halfway by Camilo himself, dead white, trembling from head to toe, crying desperately, each bout of sobs led by a fresh scream of terror. He ran straight to Lobi and clung to her like a monkey. She could feel every limb and digit digging into her, his head buried in her neck, eyes screwed shut. The three women walked toward the room where the screaming had begun, but as soon as Lobi reached the threshold, Camilo began thrashing and wailing, hyperventilating, pulling at her arms, driving her away from the door. She tried to put him down, but he stuck to her like a burr. She tried to carry him into the room. Show your tía quien te pegó, mi amor. But he thrashed and screamed. He would not go in, and he would not be released. Evelina and Ingrid rushed past them and entered the room looking around at the chair, desk, bed, chamber pot, curtains, jade plant, and bare closet with its wooden rod and three tranquil wire hangers. Nothing. There was nothing else in the room. Milito, mira, que no hay nada, papito, Ingrid entreated, but Camilo would not allow Lobi to approach the door. Ingrid blanched, crossed herself, and made a hasty exit. Evelina sat on the bed, slumped, feeling inexplicably defeated, Lobi took Camilo into her room, tucked him into her bed, and stayed with him until he fell asleep. Whatever the little entity had shown Milo that day, it never returned. But neither did Camilo ever return to that room. It was eventually curtained off and left alone, and remained that way until the family moved out decades later. That's when it began, Evelina would always say to Camilo afterward. That's when everyone began crossing the street away from you. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. 
Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. When my mom called to tell me that Milo had killed himself, hysterically sobbing so that at first I couldn't understand her, I flashed back to the day my abuelita died. My mom's boyfriend had been over. Curtis or Tom, I don't remember. It was one of the ones I liked. Wait, it had to have been Tom because I was six. Which somehow makes the memory all the sadder, since I think out of all of them, Tom had been her favorite. But he'd also turned out to be a bit of a dog, like you know who. She had loved Tom the best, and he had loved me, no small feat. And he had been there when my mom answered the phone. Hello? Si, que pasó? And then caught her as she collapsed, howling, Oh, no! I knew it probably meant my poor abuelita had finally died. I also knew I should be wailing, too, that I should be feeling just exactly like my mom was acting right then, but I felt nothing. I just didn't feel anything, which was weird to me because abuelita and I were tight. We were so tight she would let me play abuelita and banish her to the corner, where my mom found her one day, facing the walls, sitting on a very tiny stool meant for a four-year-old. Then, when I was five... She took me away to Guatemala with her, and I ended up staying for 11 months. It was only supposed to be three weeks, and forgetting all about my mom until she called one day, and the idiots let me get on the phone with her, and then I wouldn't stop crying, so they didn't let me talk to her again for the rest of the time I lived there. Other than that one time, I didn't even think about my mom. I was having the time of my life. I was like a celebrity, the American kindergartner with the braids, bangs, and big fresh mouth. I got away with some murder down there, and I'm pretty sure the experience shaped all my most unsavory character flaws. I stayed put there with Abuelita until my mom had to fly down herself and bring me back, because it had become clear that me and my granny weren't going anywhere without a fight. I insisted on flying home in full native costume, carrying a Guatemalan flag. Supposedly, I sang the national anthem while deplaning, too, but my mother is prone to exaggeration and sometimes outright revision, so I don't know if I believe this part. I'd like to think it's just a little too ridiculous to be true. So why then, tight as we were, did I feel so numb? I think I had just learned that word because I remember expressly feeling that way. Numb. This is numb. I am numb. I had a spot on my knee that was numb because I had landed from a slide onto something hard buried in the sandbox, and it had made a wretched bruise and then left a spot without any feeling at all about the size of a quarter that remains to this day. What I felt then was exactly like that nothing feeling on my knee, except all over my body, even my face. Only my brain screamed, She's never coming back! Oh no! But no other part of me joined in. I just couldn't understand it. Well, I guess that's not exactly true. I had felt something when my grandmother died. Helplessness. I'd felt helpless and stiff when I saw my mother crying like that. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't a physically affectionate child by nature. A cold fish, my mom liked to say mournfully. So even though I figured I was maybe probably supposed to be rushing over to her and throwing my arms around her, I just couldn't do it. I stayed stuck to my place in the corner of the kitchen, numb and helpless which is the exact same way I felt as I stood in my shitty little college apartment, twisting the phone cord around myself, hearing my mom wail and then finally whimper, Camilo se suicidio. I was 22 and 6 again. 
She told me my cousin had thrown himself off a bridge in Baltimore, that he had been clutching Abuelita's rosary, and that the force of impact when he'd hit the water had caused the crucifix part to embed itself in his hand, that he had addressed his suicide note to my mother, his aunt. He took his first steps with me, she sobbed. Oh my God, pobrecito, that fucking Evelina. But here, looking at his room, strange, dark, cluttered, spectacularly tidy. Yes, I said cluttered and tidy, that's what it was. I feel something, something real and strong, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's not helpless or numb. His room is filled with gargoyles, covering every surface, corner to corner to corner, arranged meticulously by height. From the doorway, I am greeted by a panorama of them in every conceivable form. Pewter, wood, crystal, plastic, ceramic, something bluish that I figure is tarnished bronze, plaster, paper mache even, and clay. The Stations of the Cross, I recognize them because they always sort of terrified me when I was little, hang out of order on the wall over his desk. I wonder if he liked rearranging them to suit his mood. I would. Next to his bed is St. Francis of Assisi, my personal favorite saint. Even though I'm not really Catholic anymore, haven't been since my mom marched us out of Mass the day the priest announced that divorced women would not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are a couple of indigenous-looking gargoyle masks on one wall, and over the bed, a spectacular painting of a gargoyle that almost looks like a Chinese dragon, regal and fierce and frightening. Everything is perfectly placed and clean. Not a speck of dust anywhere, no coffee rings. His journals are lined up neatly against the wall at the back of his desk, about 40 black-bound composition books in all. I take a journal from the middle, hoping it wouldn't offend him to go out of order like that, lie down on his bed, and wonder if he just never met anyone in his whole life who got him. I'm pretty sure it only takes one person. Milo had been in the States for many years when he finally saw La Garrapata again. The last time he had seen her, she had been just a tiny kid living in his mother's house in the Zona Dos with him and his younger brother and sister, and the four of them had gone to school together, all in the matching green and white pleats of San Vicente de Paul. His little cousin had arrived from the States, not speaking more than a few words of Spanish, but within two weeks became fluent, as only small children can tossing around Vos as though she'd been born in the very heart of the capital. He had carried her on his shoulders around school and wouldn't listen to Abuelita when she admonished him to quit buying her treats at the school tienda. La Garrapata had been particularly fond of something called picarones, like Cheetos, but not like Cheetos, that they weren't making anymore in Guatemala. In fact, when he finally saw her again as a big 21-year-old grown-up girl, the first thing out of her mouth, in her now-labored Spanish, was an inquiry about picarones and whether they could be gotten in the States. He'd had to break the news to her that they could no longer be gotten anywhere, to which she'd replied, Ah, shit. She looked just exactly the way you'd think she'd look as an adult. She was exactly the same, only bigger. He would exclaim this over and over during their brief visit to them in Baltimore, marveling at the perfection, the order of it. You're just the same. Estás igualita, igualita. No has cambiado nada, nada. He regaled her with stories of all the funny things she had done as a child in Guatemala City. How she'd been punished by the padre of their school and made to stand under the church bell, 
which she had done with arms crossed and a sour face the whole afternoon, sweat trickling over her furrowed brow. The offense? Treating the boy who had been pulling her braids every day to an earful of profanities specially selected for her by their tío Román, who had suggested the foul phrase in jest when she had come home crying about the daily abuse. Tell the hijo de puta that, Román advised seriously, and then give him this. At which point their uncle demonstrated the classic two-hand fuck you, macho and timeless. His little cousin had gone and done exactly as instructed the next day, at chapel, in full view of the entire mass and the padre, since the little kids sat in the very front pews. It had been known for ages that the padre of San Vicente de Paul never, ever smiled. But on the day he sent La Garrapata to bake under the bell in the hot December sun, he had been seen leaning back in his office chair through the cracked open door, silently laughing to himself and wiping away tears with a Holy Cross handkerchief. Milo himself had witnessed this. He'd been 17 then, and remembered, though he didn't share this with his cousin now, feeling buoyed by the sight, like he'd seen something peculiar and special. A glimpse of grace, maybe, or hope. Something they named ladies after. Something rare and strange, beautiful like foxfire. His own primita had made the padre laugh. There had to be some of that power, that chispa in himself somewhere. She was as much his blood as anyone else, after all. Could a person maybe have more in common with a cousin than a pious, overachieving younger brother or a sad-faced, scared-mouthed little sister? The memory of that day still brought him joy, and his cousin, who had no recollection of the event or any of his hilarious stories about her, seemed touched and delighted to hear it. She had come to Baltimore with an air of defiant sadness to her, prompting their much older cousin, Yuli, to take her aside and give her a dressing down about her mien and manner. Eres muy tigra, muy rabiosa. Tienes que ser más dulce, mi amor. You need to be sweeter. Sweeter? Did they not remember the little girl under the bell? The child who, chosen as the abanderada for the Independence Day parade, the highest honor the school bestowed, but too small to actually carry the school flag, had marched in front of it, alone, wearing white knee socks on her arms in place of the requisite gloves, and, seeing their abuelita a few blocks away watching the parade with her shopping bag, had broken the solemn dignity of the affair by bellowing out a shopping list that included chuchitos, marshmallows, and green mangoes? Sweet? This was what was wrong with the world, Milo felt. We love spirit, but only in a child. After childhood, everyone had just better fall in line. Milo, too, was just the same. No había cambiado nada, nada. His cousin wanted to know about his life, why he had come to the States, what he was doing if he had a girlfriend. He told her something or other. He was a chef for an airline. He'd come because things had gotten ugly back home politically. No, he didn't have a girlfriend. But let's not talk about me. I'm boring. Tell me about your life, he'd countered. I hear you are an artist. But his cousin wanted to know if she remembered something correctly. A room. Had there been a room in the house where they'd lived as children that was dark, with a dark curtain hanging over it, that nobody went into that was, in fact, forbidden to them? Was she imagining it, dreaming it, or had it really existed? Milo had to smile. Truly, she hadn't changed a bit, since now, as then, she wanted to know about the room. Yes, he told her. There had been a room. A black curtain hung over the doorway in lieu of a door, and they were all forbidden to enter it. And no one ever did. The warning was enough. 
porque ahí espantan. Plus, there was an aura of foulness about the room. It made one shudder sometimes simply to walk by it. His cousin wanted to know the real reason, but the reason they'd been given was the real reason. Spirits. There was some kind of malevolent something in there, and horrible things had been seen. By whom? His cousin wanted to know. Oh, Tia Mavi, Abuelita. He paused. Me. When she asked, saucer-eyed, breathless, what? He couldn't bring himself to tell her. It would only open the door again. He had managed to keep it closed tightly for over a year now and was doing really well. No dreams, no night terrors, no waking up in places he'd never been to in compromising positions with men and women he'd never met, no rages, no binges. The best he'd been in years, maybe even since the Garrapata years. He didn't have a girlfriend, sure, but at least now he might be able to have one. There was someone he favored. He had a car, a decent job, and everyone in general seemed calmer around him, more at ease. He was sure it had been many months since he'd last been followed, shadowed at every turn. He hadn't seen them in a long time, hadn't had to cross the street in a very long time, and every once in a while even dared to wonder if maybe he was finally free of them. He wasn't foolish enough to let his guard completely down, of course. That's how they got you, when you least expected it, in the rearview mirror or a cracked window or passing by a doorway in the very corner of your eye. He wasn't about to get too comfortable, a rabbit in a trap. In fact, it was entirely possible that this conversation with his beloved cousin was a ruse. Would he tell her what was in the room, summon them back? She hung waiting to hear of the horrors of the dark room she hadn't forgotten, invented, or dreamed after all. Milo just shook his head, smiling, closing his eyes. He couldn't tell her what was in there. He wouldn't. Just believe, he said, that it was bad. Algo espantoso. A really long time after Milo's death, maybe ten years, I'm driving around town with my mom, and who knows what the hell we're talking about, but... I bring up that awful story she once told me about my tía Evelina, who was well-known in our family and the U.S. legal system for doing all kinds of messed-up shit, but in my opinion had taken the cake with this one. My mom gives me a righteous side-eye and says, What the hell are you talking about? And I'm surprised that she wouldn't automatically know, so I snort, Come on, you know. And since she's totally paranoid, she thinks I'm trying to mess with her head or fuck with her, so she gets that clipped sound in her voice that she uses when she's not sure if she's being played with. She thinks she sounds neutral, but she sounds like danger, Will Robinson, and snaps, no, I don't. And I'm getting irritated because, seriously, how can she not know what I'm referring to? So I lay the whole goddamn thing out for her, even though it feels icky to say aloud. Remember how you told me about when Tia Evelina was doing drugs all the time with Milo and stuff? And one afternoon, he all of a sudden came to, I guess from a blackout or something, in a strange room with a really old woman on top of him trying to get it on with him? And then he freaked out and pushed her off and was like, what the fuck is happening? And then the old hag got really mad and stormed out of the room to chew Evelina out and demand her money back? And Evelina had been in the next room the whole time because it turned out that she'd been pimping out her own son to her nasty rich vieja friends. Remember? And my mom waits till we come to a stoplight, then looks over at me with shock and horror and indignation and says, with the unique sincerity of disgust, I told you no such thing. 
In everyone's house, there is a dark room. In Section 8 apartments and Spanish colonials that survive earthquakes. In the house of your heart, in the house of your soul, in the house of your mind. There is a dark room with a curtain, and nobody dares open it, and nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever goes in, because nobody ever comes out. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to The Dark Tome, Book of Stories, produced by Dagaz Media and presented by Realm, your portal to another world. Full cast and crew credits and transcripts at thedarktome.com.